Um, my name is Tim Welski. I'm Associate Dean for Enrollment and Student Services here at the Divinity School and have had the pleasure of uh, working with and being at this event um, for nine years. So uh, this is our um, ninth annual uh, Stendhal Symposium. Very glad to have you here. I'm going to offer some introductory remarks, but first of all, I just want to thank our guests, our, our fellow student colleagues here, uh, faculty colleagues, staff colleagues, and any guests we have uh, from beyond the HDS community. Uh, I also want to give special thanks to Rachel Deitch, who's our HDSSA uh, Chair of, for Academics, who has coordinated the event, coordinated the selection process, the readings, and everything that you uh, see and enjoy here today. So special thanks to, to Rachel. So in the spring of 2008, a student initiative uh, formed to create a forum for HDS students to highlight their academic work and gain scholarly experience by presenting papers to practitioners, uh, peers, and scholars. At the same time, we lost someone very dear to our community, Krister Stendhal. On this occasion this year, I'd also like to recognize Britta Stendhal, who died on February 11th of this year after a long illness. Britta was a regular guest of this symposium. She was a writer, translator, educator and scholar in Scandinavian and comparative literature and culture and in theology. She held bachelor's degrees in theology and philosophy and honorary doctor of philosophy degree from Uppsala University in her native Sweden. Britta was also a Bunting Fellow at Radcliffe College from 1961 to 63 and taught at Harvard Extension School, the Harvard Freshman Program, and the Radcliffe um, Seminar Program for years. Our thoughts and prayers are with Britta's children, the Reverend John Stendhal, Anna Langenfeld, and Daniel Stendhal. Christopher Stendhal was the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of Divinity Emeritus and was Dean of the Faculty of Divinity at Harvard from 1968 to 1979. His tenure spanned a time when great change swept through our society and our school. Many faculty, staff, and student activists and scholars of that era helped shape HDS into the multi-faith and more pluralistic institution that it is today. And Dean Stendhal's leadership ensured that Harvard Divinity School would be an institution that was responsive to the needs of the world. In the late 1980s, he returned to HDS as its first chaplain. In this role, Dr. Stendhal stated, in our community, there is no one form, name, or liturgy which, we can, claim, which can claim allegiance to all. To be a chaplain in this place, therefore, must mean to help worship happen in many forms and in many times, to guard fiercely the freedom of every person, to pray and speak in ways important to him or her, lest the specter of pluralism mute authentic expression of devotion. We still strive to achieve this standard every day at HDS and exercise the, these aspirations through noon service, our broad and inclusive curriculum, and our programming. He also shaped interfaith dialogue in the world, and we again strive to epitomize this standard at HDS. Krister compelled us to do three things. Let the other define herself. Don't think you know the other without listening. Compare equal to equal, not my positive qualities to the negative ones of the other. And find beauty in the other so as to develop holy envy. So this symposium is devoted to humbly serving two purposes to give our students 
good scholarly experience and shine a light on their work, and to pay tribute to the ongoing legacy of Christer Stendhal and inspire students to engage in further conversations across religious boundaries. To be sure, there is no one right way of doing this. Whenever a plurality of people engage in conversation with one another and bring their whole authentic selves, differences should arise and be voiced. The point of the of course is to engage, to adopt a posture of openness and receptivity, and most importantly, deep respect. The goal of such dialogue is not ultimate agreement and harmony, but peace and greater depth for humanity. So what is presented here today are some lenses for looking at these conversations across religious boundaries, each one of them unique and powerful. They are generous offerings from some very thoughtful members of our community. So I will present, I will introduce you to tonight's presenters and read their uh, titles of their papers. And at the end, uh, after they, they have had a chance to speak for about 12 minutes each, we'll have some responses from our uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson I've got to get all of your titles correct. <laughs> Ralph Aldo Emerson Unitarian Universalist Association Senior Lecturer in Divinity, Associate Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs, and Chair of the MTS Curriculum Committee, uh, Dr. Dan McCannon. Uh, and then we will also pass it off to Rachel for some Q&A at the end. So tonight's presenters are Orly Robin, MTS1, uh, who will be presenting, I think, the best title of the night, maybe, if I can award that, New Textures of Interfaith Engagement. Atheist, Jediist, and the Liquid Modern World. We'll also have Ryan Gregg, uh, MTS2, who will present Revelatory Love, Poetry in the Moment of Encounter. Eric Stephen, MTS2, who will present Proselytism and the Paradox of Tolerance, a comparative analysis of state approaches to proselytism and related religious speech. And Rod Owens, MDiv2, who will present Woman Hold My Hand, Visualizing Tara, Swift One, Mother Liberator, Womanist. So without further ado, I'll pass it off to Orly. Thank you very much. Okay. In this project, I begin with Chris Stedman's conception of a faithiest, one who engages actively with ideological difference and aims to overcome the divide between those who identify as religious and those as secular. I employ faithism as a springboard to ultimately compare new transformative textures or modes of interfaith engagement, that is, real-time faithistic dialogue with cyber-spiritual Jediistic exchange. In this paper, I invoke media theory to explore how virtual social spaces cultivate liquid identity. Cyberculture nurtures a fluid, flexible self who becomes immersed in virtual religious diversity. When the religious self engages, weighs, processes, accepts, or rejects ideas that flow to and through it, a digitally mediated pluralism begins to emerge. Thus, cyber spiritualities have the power and potential to expand lines of communication, encouraging an attitude of respect. However, I take issue with the sustainability of mediated pluralism. Does difference dissipate into the liquid modern world of cyberspace? Do religions amalgamate <clears throat> into clustered cyber-spiritual entities? Turning to my cyber-religion case study, Jediism, I question, if Jediism's moments of interfaith engagement dissolve into synchronistic homogeneity, has Jediism's theological fabric become caught in the fluidity that undergirds the liquid modern cyber world? 
Can virtual mediated pluralism ever be stable? Or might cyber spirituality only ever be capable of generating fleeting moments of pluralistic engagement? Ultimately, I question, is the liquid modern cyber world conducive to religious pluralism if the very nature of liquid is synchronistic? Delving into each of these participatory cultures, I query, how does interfaith engagement transpire differently through physical and mediated textures? So to begin, faithism. At its epicenter, faithism has a universalistic telos, grounded in three essential components. Respect for individual religions or non-religious identity, mutually inspiring relationships, and common action for the common good. At its crux, a faithiest advocates for the power and potential of interfaith and interreligious dialogue, campaigning to achieve religious pluralism. Faithiest, published in 2012 by Beacon Press, begins with author Chris Stedman describing an uncomfortable experience he has at a social gathering following a panel on how the non-religious should approach religion. And at this after party, he's approached by a couple who question him, wasn't it wonderful how intelligent the panelists were and how wickedly they exposed the frauds of religion? And weren't they right that we must all focus our energy on bringing about the demise of religious myths? And Stedman questions the couple's excitement and the man snidely remarks back at him, oh, I get it. You're one of those atheists. You're not a real atheist. We've got a name for people like you. You're a faithiest. And here, this is the first time that Stedman hears this term faithiest and the man intends to be derogatory. In their eyes, a faithiest is not a real atheist, but rather someone foolishly sympathetic to religion. When atheists lump all religious believers together and shame them as one uniformly condemnable block, they become exclusionary. And when Stedman fails to adhere to normative atheist behavior, he's reminded immediately of times when he was told he couldn't be a real Christian because of his homosexuality. So as such, he transforms the term, and faithism becomes this positive movement, a positive culture. I want to highlight one particular moment from the book, where Stedman describes being confronted by several men with Bibles in hand who accused him of maintaining what they referred to as an alternative lifestyle. And Stedman describes how the notion of employing empathy, of meeting people more than halfway when trying to transcend differences, and he felt compelled to pursue a conversation. And he shares the dialogue that ensued. But the moment I want to highlight is that after Stedman shared his story, he noticed that there was a quiet that had overtaken the group. And in the wake of this exchange, each engaged in open discourse for the next few hours, each individual came to understand one another as fuller human beings instead of as mere caricatures of sexualities or religious identities. But each remained relatively fixed in their convictions. Through interfaith exchange, differences of belief, practice, and worldview remained. After a moment of vulnerability, neither party compromised his or her spiritual outlook, but rather the religious and the secular dialogue without compromising their differences. Faithism sustains ideological difference. But in the era of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and other social media, interfaith dialoguing now often ensues virtually. In Rachel Wagner's God-Wired Religion, Ritual, and Virtual Reality, Wagner explains that dialoguing has become transformed in recent decades with immigration, globalization, and networking technologies, making it possible in ways unimaginable just 100 years ago. People now interact with others around the world and hear about their traditions, values, and belief systems within cyberspace. 
immersed in a flood of information, a growing dynamic plurality of religious forms, we can begin to experiment with different spiritualities, produce and reproduce myriad online personas. In cyberculture, religions converge virtually. And for the first time in history, on such a scale, we begin to manipulate ourselves digitally. In cyberspace, when we manipulate ourselves, we form what are called hyper-identities, complex structures that we update incessantly by choosing from the multitude of solutions. <clears throat> the liquid texture of technology encourages us to play with identity, making self-expression more liquid than ever. Scholar Sherry Turkle asserts that a more fluid sense of self allows a greater capacity for acknowledging diversity. In the liquid modern world, what most characterizes the model of a flexible self for Turkle are the lines of communication between its various aspects that become open. And this open communication encourages an attitude of respect. For Wagner, what then emerges is this kind of natural, digitally mediated pluralism, intercontinentally, where individuals can engage in acknowledging religious beliefs and or practices. But what I want to highlight here is what happens after this moment of acknowledgement. In the following section, I want to highlight the Church of Jediism to capture a case study of fleeting pluralistic engagement that dissipates into the fluidity. And here I hope to emphasize the temporary nature of digitally mediated pluralistic cyber inclusivity. So, Jediism. It's a rich, <coughs> articulate example of a religion in cyberspace, where cybernauts actively take part in online chat rooms and perform rituals. And for these hyper-real religionists, the web becomes a springboard to share their construction of self with the world. Jediists often share their reflections about times when they come into contact with the force. Yes, the force. The energy at the nucleus of Jediist spirituality. Jediists envision the force at the same time as an almost scientific energy which can be measured, channeled, and used, and as a semi-personal divine power with its own will, purpose, and essential goodness. For Jediists, as scholar Marcus Davidson explains, the force ranges from Christianity to Buddhism to New Age, and each of the world's religions share a common core. In Jediism, the different <coughs> gods and the various religions are really just different names to explain and articulate a force. Like John Hick, who validates each of the great world religions, suggesting that no one religion occupies the central space, and instead the various religions of the world orbit around an ultimate, for Jediist user Ace Boisier, Jediists should, quote, embrace the similarities between faiths and come to embrace the common threads that string them together. That is, different, often very different totalities, consisting of distinctive ways of conceiving and experiencing the force, the underlying fundamental nature of the universe. This Jediist concludes, don't just tolerate your fellow human beings, listen to them. Like a faithiest who seeks opportunities to learn by listening, focusing less on what sets us apart and more on articulating our positive values. At the core of Jediist teachings, Jediists strive to, quote, respect the right for others to disagree with your religious beliefs and or practices committed to humanity. And as Jediist user Ezekiel concludes on Temple of the Jedi Forum, it can be said that the Jedi are pluralists. But again, what happens after this moment when a Jediist acknowledges other religions, faiths, and spiritualities? After listening, learning, and understanding that the world's various religions orbit in harmony and share a central force which pervades a myriad of theologies, rituals, and practices, Jediists begin to <coughs> conflate religions. 
Jedi's active, empathetic listeners do respect difference and respect the right for others to disagree with religious beliefs and practices. However, Jediism becomes caught in the fluidity undergirding the liquid modern cyber world. Difference dissipates after the initial encounter. In the wake of acknowledging other religions, faiths, and spiritualities, Jediists begin to, quote, flow like water. Individual bodies dissolve in a meta-organic electronic ocean peopled by permeable intelligences. In cyberspace, human and computer formation processing overlap and slip into one another, becoming one. In the words of media theory scholar Marcus Novak, he writes, cyberspace is liquid, liquid cyberspace, liquid architecture, an architecture that breathes, pulses, leaps as one form. For Novak, this liquid space opens to welcome visitors with different backgrounds. But once the different have been welcomed, they begin to dissolve. And the dematerialized, dancing, difficult architecture of cyberspace, <coughs> fluctuating, ethereal, temperamental, and transmissible to all parts of the world simultaneously. At the end of specificity, once a Jediist engages, weighs, processes, accepts, or rejects ideas that flow to and through it, after listening and learning, there lies silence, ever-changing liquid. Past moments of active, mediated, pluralistic engagement melt away into the synchronistic liquid of cyberspace. So ultimately, partaking in fleeting moments of mediated pluralism will not achieve religious pluralism. From this, I suggest only synchronitism, where religions flow like water into one another, will come into being. One should engage in real-time interfaith dialogue to hear the quiet that overtakes the group that Stedman described in his memoir, the hushed vulnerability, the resonant sound of sustained religious difference. Thanks, that was beautiful. Uh, my name is Ryan, and I'll be presenting a paper that I wrote um, last year for Dr. Michael Jackson's class, Poetry and Religion. So in the text, there are a few <coughs> references to this class and this year, and so it's all retrospective, I guess, from that time. Uh, my paper is entitled Revelatory Love. Although it might be natural to suppose that considering the topic of inspiration is a prerequisite to thinking about revelation, it's interesting to observe that this order is reversed in the writings of Octavio Pass. In The Bow and the Lear, the chapter The Poetic Revelation precedes and lays conceptual groundwork for the chapter Inspiration. To his mind, it seems that revelation is basic to inspiration rather than a subcategory. Stated in linguistic terms, we might even say that inspiration is a hyponym of revelation. But then again, perhaps this is all too fine a distinction. It's entirely plausible that there's no real difference at all between these two concepts, and that the term revelation is merely a theological gloss for inspiration. Nevertheless, the etymologies themselves do seem to stubbornly lay claim to unique semantic territory. The Latin vellum, meaning veil, is embedded within the word revelation, suggesting the unveiling of something which is always, even objectively, there. And as we learned in class, the Latin spirare, meaning to blow gently or breathe, is the core idea within inspiration, suggesting something less fixed, the rare wind. So perhaps the terms do fundamentally point in different directions and even assume different metaphysical interpretations of reality. But it will not be this paper's project to argue for any tight definitions. 
Rather, this paper will assume on the weight of historical testimony that genuine revelatory experiences do occur, and its project will be to ask, in conversation with select points from the writings of Octavio Paz, how encountering or even becoming the other is a catalyst for such experiences. It seems to be the case that many of the questions about the nature of poetry are attempts to make sense of the, the persistent tension between the sheer facticity of being, on the one hand, and the second order activity of articulating and organizing it into language, on the other. It also seems to be the case that many writers who have thought deeply about these questions arrive in one way or another to the conclusion that a key, perhaps the key, to understanding oneself via the language of poetry is in fact going beyond oneself. Quote, we only live by transcending ourselves, end quote, Paz writes in his chapter on poetic revelation. And writers today are still attempting to harness this insight in order to give life to their words. Uh, this past Sunday, I was out for a walk, and as I passed the out-of-town newsstand in Harvard Square, I did a double take. There along the sidewalk on the bottom shelf was a magazine called Poets and Writers, and spanning its cover was one large word, inspiration. <laughs> Already thinking forward to the writing of this paper, I paid the $5.95 for the magazine, put it on my stack of possible sources. And when I found time later to look through it, I was interested by an article entitled More Ideas Faster by Grant Faulkner. The author describes the so-called automatic writing method of Jack Kerouac, the American novelist and poet who composed at great speed, almost out of control, quote, as a way to tap into the uncensored depths of his unconscious to find his true voice, end quote. Kerouac's method drew on the aesthetic assumptions of jazz music and surrealism, but its ultimate source was else, elsewhere. Quote, the notion of automatic writing was actually spawned in America's spir spiritualist movement of the 1800s. Spiritualists believed that spirits could, could, take could take control of the hand of a medium to write messages, letters, even entire books. It was a way to conjure the, uh, quote, other side of life, end quote. This spiritual origin of Kerouac's method, therefore, affirms Paz's notion. In order to take control of your true authorial voice, you must relinquish that control to another. Or said another way, to become yourself, you must leave yourself. Such a transference of identity is surely spiritual, or psychological if you prefer, before it is artistic. On the first day of class, Professor Jackson made mention of a recurrent statement in the history of poetry. It came to me in a dream. This statement, when exegeted component by component, seems to reinforce what both Paz and Kerouac are saying. So first, it came. The verb suggests a change of location, something arriving from over there to right here. Next, to me. Well, who is this me, one wonders. Is it the total mind, conscious and unconscious? Of course, this is where things become slippery and contentious, but Given the spatial relocation previously suggested, coupled with the tone of astonishment in which the whole phrase uttered, perhaps it can be understood that the totality of it is outside the totality of me. Lastly, in a dream. Here is an allusion to the nocturnal <laughs> consciousness we have discussed in class, the penumbral zone of human psychology, whose products are at once eerily familiar and foreign. Taken all together, then, the simple words, it came to me in a dream, are quivering, as it were, with alterity, with the suggestion that rare moments of poetic supercharge are in fact activated by an encounter with something beyond ourselves. 
this self-other dialectic is neither simple nor insignificant. As we wrestle with the intense complexity of our own existence, at times bordering on the despair born of alienation, loneliness, and meaninglessness, it's the proximity of our raw being with another raw being that has the unique capacity to rescue the whole enterprise, inverting stark negativity into suffusive positivity. Quote, presence redeems being, end quote, writes Paz in declarative staccato. One plus one is not two, but a synergistic eruption of the sort that chemically powers the stars. And here too, Paz is not alone in his insight. That self-same incendiary space between subject and object, self and other, is the topic of Martin Buber's essay, I and Thou. Its thesis, which has generated a cottage industry of commentary and interpretation, is expressed repeatedly in the short book by sentences like, quote, through the thou, a man becomes I, end quote. Or again, quote, as I become I, I say thou, end quote. Buber's interest, however, is not fundamentally with the entities I or thou, but with the relationship between them and how that relationship transforms the entities involved. The mystical metaphor comes to mind of a drop of water being dissolved and no longer identifiable within a glass of red wine. The surrender of self into the sphere of the other is an inexpressible, holistic intoxication of being. Some call it love. What does all this have to do with poetry? Just this. The fusion of two souls often discharges a blinding light, which paradoxically makes visible a previously unseen landscape, both within the lovers themselves and also the world they inhabit. The features of this startling landscape beg to be named, just as the astronaut instinctively feels the need to plant a flag on the surface of the moon. And that naming is poetry. Appearing at first like some warped reality, where the grammars of physics and language are blurred into a confusion of time and space and you and me. It is the testimony of poetry, no less than that of general relativity, that the exaggeration of this warping actually reveals the balanced contours of a more fundamental reality. The images of Rumi come to mind here, translated by Coleman Barks. Quote, in the early morning hour, just before dawn, Lover and beloved wake and take a drink of water. She asks, do you love me or yourself more? Really, tell the absolute truth. He says, there's nothing left of me. I'm like a ruby held up to the sunrise. Is it still a stone or a world made of redness? It has no resistance to sunlight, end quote. Without the sunrise of the lover's presence, could the poet ever have seen himself as a world swimming in redness? No. And the poet only hints at what Paz explicitly says about the way love's revelation of who we really are is of a piece with the revelation of poetry. Quote, we have forgotten our names and our pronouns are confused and entwined. I is you, you is I, end quote. If the ethos, however, of the foregoing has been about merger and togetherness, is that it, it is at this point that Paz and I actually part ways in our understanding of poetry. For in the passage where he sets out the idea of love's participatory revelation, the scope seems limited to human love, platonic indeed, yet typified by amorous ecstasies which shuttle one powerfully, almost helplessly, back and forth between poles of being and non-being. 
still. The title of this course is Poetry and Religion. And as a religious person myself, a religious person who sometimes writes poetry, I wish to come to terms with the role which the principal personality of religion may play in the poetic experience, namely God. And upon introducing this new factor, another poem comes quickly to mind, similar in sentiment to Rumi's, yet crucially different. Pastor poet theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing in the summer of 1944 from his cell at Tegel Military Prison, soon before his execution by hanging, describes in the poem, Who Am I?, his own radical oscillations between yes and no, and the spiritual vertigo of it all. This past uh, semester, we translated the poem in German class, and to be sure, it's not a poem on the rosy end of any spectrum, yet the way the piece concludes should strike us as familiar. In the final line, Bonhoeffer writes, please bear with my German, Wer ich auch bin, du kennst mich, dein bin ich, O oh Gott. Whoever I may be, you know me. I am yours, O oh God. It's as, if the, it's as if the writer arrives at last to the heart of the matter with the constitutive adjective of his existence, yours. One feels this possessive adjective is what allows him to possess his own life at all. But whether or not my particular reading of this particular poem is correct, and it may not be, the point to be made, which could have been made just as well from a variety of other poems, is that the other party in the revelation of love, a moment so electric that the very pronouns through which we mediate relationships are welded together, that this other party can be either human or divine. To conclude, when writing on a theme such as this, it is difficult to resist a feeling of impotence. Woe betide those who fail to speak, wrote St. Augustine, while the chatterboxes go on saying nothing. But then again, perhaps the continuation of the poetic enterprise itself is owing to this deflated feeling, this realization that in the arena of beauty, to which the human is maddeningly adjacent, words have a very short half-life. Spoken, they become incandescent for one almost monstrous instant, and then are no more. How could a theory ever describe the ultimate mechanics of such an ontic flare-up and decay? Some call it inspiration, <clears throat> positing a consciousness to which one must only surrender. Others call it revelation, positing a divinity who pulls back the veil from what is hidden. Some experiment with it as an aesthetic method, publishing articles detailing how it can be harnessed, while others cherish it privately as the unspeakable being, investing existence with meaning on the most particular and universal levels. Whatever it may be, its source and telos will likely remain somewhere in the compressed silence on the far side of humanity's event horizon. Yet what is foreign is not to be feared as hostile. Were it not for a black hole, I will never see. I could not write these words about a black hole, I will never see. Nor could I write them were I too close. The takeaway then, to end, is that the question marks which threaten in the empty space between raw experience and second-order language are born of a merciful obscurity. And should one choose to experiment in that realm, there appears to be but one methodology, love. Thank you.
Well, thank you so much to Rachel Deitch for organizing this event, and thank you all for coming tonight. Um, I'd like to take some time now to come at the questions presented at the symposium concerning interreligious dialogue from a bit of a different angle and to examine the ways in which proselytism, something so integral to a number of faith traditions, may complicate interfaith discourse and even the ideals of pluralism in Western democracies. Now before I begin, I will say that this discussion has been extracted from a larger work that sought to place these concerns in a broader context than just Western liberalism and that also engaged more theoretical questions surrounding the continued role of tolerance rhetoric in Western constitutionalism, even despite its critics, and the relationship between proselytism and the tolerance paradigm, all of which I won't be able to touch upon in my time limit, but would be more than happy to talk about later. Instead, what I hope to do is focus on one specific question from this research, which is how and why case law coming out of the United States and the European Union differs so significantly with regard to how they understand and regulate proselytism. And what I will argue is that these differing approaches have emerged out of a fundamentally different response to what British philosopher Karl Popper has called the paradox of tolerance in Western liberalism. Put simply, what Popper means by this phrase is that an understanding of tolerance carried to its logical extreme would require political actors to tolerate those whose ideas or theological positions are themselves intolerant, severely compromising the entire project of tolerance itself. The reason I see the paradox of tolerance as a helpful framing device in this discussion is because proselytism in the Western imagination has in many respects become viewed as something antagonistic to tolerance. This is to say, if proselytism is defined as intentional, expressive acts conducted by religiously motivated individuals with the intention of altering the belief systems of non-adherence in some theologically significant way, then some methods of proselytism and some of the language used in proselytizing speech may fail or refuse to tolerate the theologies, lived experiences, or lifestyles of others. How are we to deal with forms of proselytism that treat non-adherence as inherently immoral or soteriologically doomed? Or how does proselytize, or, or proselytizing rhetoric that uses incendiary, pejorative, or intentionally vitriolic language? To tolerate these speech acts would be to compromise the rights of non-adherence rights to privacy, equality, and potentially even human dignity. But to prescribe them would be little more than governmental intolerance toward proselytizing individuals' rights to free speech and religious exercise. Faced with this ethical and legal dilemma, the US and the EU have forged separate paths, each with its own justifications, strengths, and limitations that may be teased out and then further examined through comparative analysis. To begin with the United States, in the American constitutional model, Legal issues surrounding the regulation of proselytism and related religious speech often implicate both the free exercise clause and the free speech clause of the federal constitution's first amendment. However, it is the speech component that is most often emphasized legally. Without going too much into detail about the principles and philosophical assumptions that underline American free speech law, suffice to say that the free speech clause has been routinely interpreted to endorse a regime of speech that legal theorist Donald Commerce describes as, quote, uninhibited, robust, and wide open to the point that it firmly positions the United States on the far libertarian end of the spectrum of expressive freedom. In many ways, the rather expansive protection that the Constitution and its interpreters have afforded to speech is largely premised on American popular assumptions as to the inherent democratic value of speech per se. That is, in the American context, the public sphere is often idealized as a robust marketplace of ideas whereby competing political arguments are proffered 
and then subjected to reasoned deliberation by a civically engaged public in order to arrive at an ever closer understanding of truth and justice. Following a liberal political philosophy that traces at least as far back as John Stuart Mill, advocates of this open market metaphor argue that public political discourse operates most effectively when speakers are subjected to the fewest regulations possible. At the same time, however, free speech is not protected as an absolute right in the US, but may be subject to certain regulations. For our purposes here, it's important to distinguish between what we can call content neutral and content-based regulations on speech. Content neutral regulations do not seek to police the message conveyed by speakers, but only the time, place, or manner, often called TPM, of the speech itself. These restrictions are deemed constitutional so long as the restrictions are justified without reference um, to the content of the, of the regulated speech, are narrowly tailored to serve a significant, gov significant governmental interest, and leave open ample alternative channels for communication. By way of example, in Hefron v. International Society for Krishna Consciousness in 1981, a group of Hare Krishnas unsuccessfully challenged a statute prescribing the distribution of religious pamphlets at the Minnesota State Fair outside of designated booths because, in the court's opinion, the TPM limitation did not compromise the group's ability to otherwise communicate its message. Similarly, in Cox versus New Hampshire in 1941, the court determined that a fine levied against a congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses for marching on city sidewalks without first obtaining a parade permit was constitutional given that the permits neutrally advance the state interest of maintaining order and safety in public spaces. All of these two examples are obviously in no way exhaustive. They nonetheless demonstrate that proselytism in the United States can indeed be subjected to governmental regulation. However, and this is a big however, proselytizers are nonetheless afforded virtually unlimited latitude in the content of their speech. As the Supreme Court wrote in Hill versus Colorado in 200, in, yeah, in 200, in 2000, <laughs> we're an old country. <laughs> um, in 2000, regarding controversial religious speech outside of abortion clinics, quote, the right to attempt to persuade others to change their views may not be curtailed simply because the speaker's message may be offensive to his audience. And this is not a moderate claim. In Skokie v. National Socialist Party in 1977, the Supreme Court, well, a lower court, actually after, reprimand from, after remand from the Supreme Court, permitted members of the American Nazi Party to conduct an otherwise legal march through the town of Skokie, Illinois, a town in which at that time about one in six residents living there were survivors of the Holocaust, on the grounds that the deliberate offensiveness of their speech act did not trump that group's First Amendment rights. This is to say, speech in the American constitutional model need not be rhetorically tolerant in order to receive constitutional protection. The fact that American free speech jurisprudence is predicated on the belief that speech may not be banned merely because it offends or shocks illuminates the United States' strong position on the paradox of tolerance. Under the American model, a wide net is cast as to what is to be considered legally tolerated speech. And it is up to the American public, as they participate in this marketplace of ideas, to determine the relative value and veracity of competing claims including intolerant ones. In contrast, this case law emerging out of the European Union, a politico-economic partnership of 28 European states, and its European Court of Human Rights, ECTHR, takes a strikingly different tone. To begin, it's important to note that the ECTHR draws heavily 
from its interpretation of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights to guide their civil liberties litigation. A document that positions, quote, the recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family as the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. This fundamental right to human dignity, in many ways rooted in Kantian egalitarianism and the Hegelian right of recognition, has frequently been interpreted to be both universal and absolute. That is, the entire scope of the right is unconditionally protected and therefore cannot in any way be undercut by other liberty interests, including the rights of free speech or religious exercise. Regardless of how expansively one wishes to define human dignity, it is nonetheless clear that this international human rights norm has deeply informed European national and transnational legal theory in a way not found in that of the US. Instead, the ECTHR has historically given the state broad, its state's broad license to regulate proselytizing speech that they believe runs afoul of the fundamental right to human dignity or correlate state interests such as equality and civil peace. In Kokinakis versus Greece in 1993, the ECTHR upheld a Greek law prohibiting, quote, any direct or indirect attempt to intrude on the religious beliefs of a person of a different religious persuasion with the aim of undermining those beliefs, end quote. Reasoning that such restrictions on proselytism prove a legitimate exercise of the state's desire to protect the rights of others from unsolicited intrusion. In Larissa's versus Greece in 1998, the High Court further clarified that this was not to suggest that religious individuals do not hold a free exercise right to proselytize, but only that proselytism efforts must be contextualized in, quote, an innocuous exchange of ideas, which the recipient is free to accept or reject, such that proselytism would not be viewed as a form of harassment. Moreover, the European Union has also historically taken a harder line than the US against intentionally offensive speech including religiously motivated hate speech and forms of proselytism that desecrate or demean the religion of others. In Wingrove versus United Kingdom in 1996, the ECTHR upheld the English court's decision to censor a film entitled Visions of Ecstasy, which included intentionally controversial, sexually explicit depictions of the nun Teresa of Avila on the grounds that this constituted an act of blasphemy as defined under English criminal law. According to the ECTHR, blasphemy laws were, defense, were defensible under European and international human rights norms because they seek to assure that, quote, opinions hostile to religion are couched in decent and temperate language so as not to offend or otherwise unduly undermine human dignity or peace. In Otto Primager Institute v. Austria in 1994, the European court held, and the language of this is astounding, that, quote, provocative portrayals of objects of religious veneration can be prohibited when they constitute a malicious violation of the spirit of tolerance. In short, these cases show that Euro the European Union often ranks the principles of tolerance, civil peace, and equal human dignity as more fundamental than the freedom of speech or unencumbered free religious exercise. This is to say, European Union European Union jurisprudence appears to be attempting to resolve the paradox of tolerance in a way similar to that of Popper by suggesting that the principle of tolerance does not imply intolerance towards, um, does not imply intolerance towards, does not imply tolerance towards intolerance. Um, and so that conduct does not need to receive legal sanction. While this is not to say that the EU has sought to expurgate all forms of contestation and dissent from the public sphere, 
It does stand in stark contrast to that of the US, despite the fact that both systems profess to be championing the principles of liberalism and democracy. In the United States, proselytizers are given almost unlimited freedom to proffer their religious messages. And the proselytized are forced to accept that a robust and unfettered marketplace of ideas will sometimes contain offensive speech. In contrast, the European Union's approach is much more concerned with preserving national unity, bolstering public order, and affirming equal human dignity through a tolerance paradigm than it is in securing the, pub the, the public sphere to be as open as possible. While there undoubtedly exist strengths and limitations to each of these approaches, each method may nonetheless be read as a reasoned attempt to resolve and overcome the paradox of tolerance while still taking seriously the rights that have been legally endowed to their citizens. And as the Standall Symposium continues to challenge us to think more deeply about interreligious dialogue, it is important to keep in mind that interfaith discourse also carries with it the propensity for interfaith tension, as these questions surrounding proselytism demonstrate. And so we must also be attuned to the social, political, and legal implications of these tensions and the inevitably imperfect ways that societies go about navigating them. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. I've been so thrilled to share this space with my colleagues who are presenting really brilliant work. Um, this particular project emerged out of being invited by Carrie Maloney to offer um, a presentation about religious practice at the Center um, for the Study of World Religion in November. Um, there I kind of put some random ideas together and then the staff, editorial staff of the Bulletin dared me to write a paper about it. Um, so I developed a paper and was able to also submit it as my final project for new studies in <coughs> the field of Tibetan um, Buddhism, um, taught by Liz Monson last semester. Um, so as um, Rihanna has been singing, work, 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 uh, <coughs> this paper has been working. <laughs> um, I'm very proud to have it um, featured in um, this current issue of the bulletin. So my central question in this project is, what does a, an ancient tantric goddess have to do with me? Woman hold my hand. Visualizing Tara, swift one, mother, liberator, womanist. Who binds my wounds when I am bruised and battered by strangers and those daily walking in my life? Who lets me know that I am more than my hurtings? Woman, hold my hand from May Francis by Bernice Johnson Reagan. So I had never heard of Sweet Honey in the Rock until I began doing some research on the history of black American roots music more than a decade ago as a writer and an editor for a small arts and activism magazine. I wanted to chart the development of black roots music and place it within the tradition of black liberation struggle. Sweet Honey, as they are called in the shorthand, and its founder, Bernice Johnson Reagan, came up often as a group that embodied the tradition of black roots music as an expression of social liberation. I was intrigued. I discovered that the group was celebrating its 25th anniversary during the time, um, during that particular time with the release of a new album. I decided to review the album for the magazine and was also able to interview Reagan. That particular album, The Women Gather, spoke about holding the space to mourn and remember the various acts of violence that daily traumatize and re-traumatize not just black folks, but all people. It was about the struggle to make meaning out of what seemed senseless and meaningless. 
It was about love, struggle, and survival. It became my favorite album and Sweet Honey my favorite musical group. The group, as Reagan was explained to me, was made up of powerful black women activists and vocalists who together formed one of the most renowned all-female a cappella groups in the world. Reagan had been active in the civil rights movement as a college student, and speaking with her was like receiving a direct and moving transmission of someone who lived and embodied the movement. There was strong confidence and compassion in her words, and the same energy was at the heart of Sweet Honey's art. Though they sang from the joy and struggles of their lives as black women, their music was still rooted in the experiences of Afro-diasporic people and any people engaged in the work of liberation. They sang my life. This ensemble echoed a deep sense of compassion and nurturing. When I listen to Sweet Honey, I feel cared for. I feel cared for. They hold me in my woundedness and warmth and kindness. Soon after, I began practicing Tibetan Tantric Buddhism and was introduced not only to an extensive practice of meditation, but also to the rich mythology of Tantric deities. I was drawn in particular to Tara, the female Buddha and embodiment of compassion or the wish for others to be free from suffering. She is known as the Mother Liberator, since compassion is at the heart of spiritual liberation or enlightenment within Tibetan Buddhism. One of my teachers instructed me to see her as a friend, mother, sister, and homegirl. My engagement with our system of ritual practice and meditation deepened my sense of entombment too and concern for not just my own pain, but that of others around me. As my intimacy with Tara and the music of Sweet Honey deepened, I began to hear the essence of Tara in Sweet Honey's music. Quote, where do I go when there's nowhere to turn to? Woman, hold my hand, unquote. Listening to Sweet Honey and engaging in the practice of visualizing Tara and chanting mantras to her, it gives me a profound sense of the divine feminine. I have found both practices deeply healing in my development as a Buddhist, activist, and black queer man. As I began my study of womanism, the term Alice Walker coined in 1983 to address the intersection of racism and sexism neglected by white feminists, I realized womanism had a profound affinity with Tara's practice of liberatory compassion, Walker defines womanist as a woman who, quote, appreciates and prefers women's culture, women's emotional flexibility, values tears as a natural counterbalance of laughter and women's strength, unquote. Walker celebrates the warmth, the love, and compassion of the female body in its many capacities, just as Tara the female Buddha does. Womanism restores love and compassion as key practices within a liberatory ideology, just as love and compassion are central to the very essence of Tara. As I have continued to deepen my personal Buddhist practice and my activism, activism on behalf of racial healing, the songs of Sweet Honey and the Rock and Tara's mantras have formed a centering and empowering soundscape to my work. The fierce love of Tara and the womanists like Walker wake me up every morning. They refuse to let me apologize for my being here. They bless me with the capacity to be silent, alone, and grieving when I most need to be. I was first introduced to Tara through the chanting of her mantra in my first sangha, our Buddhist congregation. My sangha met weekly in a hall with high ceilings and tall windows just near here in Harvard Square. When we chanted the mantra, warm, sinuous music filled every crevice of the space. Our version of her mantra, Om Tar Tutaya Soha, was a soaring melodic chant that for me still evokes an experience of being protected, cared for, and guarded. That same year, I attended a retreat in Santa Rosa, California, where I, where I was encouraged to visualize Tara during a guided meditation. Just before the retreat, I had gone through a romantic breakup, and I was the only person of color in the retreat. I was feeling lonely and marginalized. 
As I sat in a large room with dozens of, dozens of other retreatants visualizing myself as Tara, I felt like there was someone who cared. Identifying as the deity helped me to let go of the painful experiences and enabled me to open my heart to self-compassion. During the subsequent decade, I continued these practices. Identifying with Tara has allowed me to develop a sense of divine feminine with my experience of masculinity. Working with Tara's energy gives me the feeling of being a little boy running to meet my mother when I feel, felt scared. It is the feeling of how she would embrace me. That's how chanting Char's mantra and identifying with her Im image makes me feel. But exactly who and what is Tara? Tara is the female Buddha of compassion and is mostly associated with Tibetan tantric Buddhism called Joma in Tibetan. Her name means female liberator or mother liberator. In her most recognized form, she is Green Tara, a radiant woman of color who sits on an, an immaculate lotus draped in the finest silks and adorned in exquisite ornaments. The most popular exploration of her origins was rendered by Taranatha, the great 17th century Tibetan Lama and scholar who composed the origin of Tara Tantra. The work is largely an anecdotal, with Tantra, with Taranatha, seemingly seeming to string together various legends of Tara's origin and the spread of her particular practice. The narrative has the feeling of mythology and is an example of how the Tibetan conception of history is a mystical construction where time is not linear and where meaning is, de is derived from the divine and supernatural. The mystical is privileged over historical fact. The origin of Tara Tantra tells the mythological story of the origin of the first and only female Buddha in Tibetan Buddhism. Yet it is more than a story. The narrative has impacted both Tibetan and non-Tibetan Buddhist conceptions about compassion and how to practice it. The origin of Tara Tantra reveal, reveals that in a long ago time, a Buddha named Sound of Drum emerged. At the same time, there lived a princess named Wisdom Moon. She was faithful and deeply devoted to the Buddha and his retinue, so devoted that she spent 10,100,000 years making offerings to them. Needless to say, the retinue was quite pleased. The princess was able to accumulate enough wisdom and merit to achieve the initial stages of bodhicitta, or the awakened heart. The monks were thrilled, and they encouraged her to continue her practice. Quote, it is a result of these, your roots of virtuous actions, that you have come into being in this female form. If you pray that your deeds accord with the teachings, then indeed, on that account, you will change your form to that of a man, Unquote. But the princess was not so pleased with this answer. She responded by criticizing their short-sightedness, vowing to achieve enlightenment as a woman. Quote, in this life, there is no such distinction as male and female, neither of self-identity, a person, or any conception of such. And therefore, attachment to ideas of male and female is quite worthless. Weak-minded worldlings are always deluded by this. There are many who wish to gain enlightenment in a man's form, but there are few who wish to work for the welfare of sentient beings in a female form. Therefore, may I, in a female body, work for the welfare of beings right until samsara has emptied." Unquote. Tara continued to practice for another 10,100,000 years. Her meditative attainments were so great that they helped to liberate one trillion people a day. She became known as the Savoris, and the Buddha Sound of Jam renamed her Tara. In the presence of, of the Tathagata, Amagosiddhi, one of the five wisdom Buddhas, she made a vow to protect and guard all sentient beings. Each day while in samadhi, or a state of meditation, meditative concentration, she helped one trillion beings become enlightened, and she vanquished one trillion demons each night. 
She would eventually be known as the swift one, the heroine, the liberator, the affectionate mother. It is because of Tara's fierce dedication to the liberation of all beings, she became so associated with compassion. Tara is an example of a being who purified ordinary states of mind, ascended to the level of the divine, and attaining the state of a deity. Tantra emerges out of the belief that beings are already enlightened, but do not realize it. To be enlightened is to know the true nature of one's mind. In Tibetan Buddhism, tantra, means, tantra is a means through which a practitioner can quickly achieve realization of nature of mind in a single life through ritualistic, ritualistic practice that includes meditation, chanting, visualization, deity uh, devotion, as well as physical and energy-based yoga practices. As the influential Tibetan teacher and scholar uh, uh, Lama Thubten uh, Yeshe has written, quote, the tantric yogi or yogini, as these supremely skillful practitioners are called in Sanskrit, learns to think, speak, and act now as if he or she were already a fully enlightened Buddha. Because this powerful approach brings the future result of full awakening into the present moment of spiritual practice, tantra is sometimes called the resultant vehicle to enlightenment, unquote. Lama Yeshe's insight evokes the contemporary proverb of faking it till you make it. In this tradition, the, the practitioner endeavors to take on the views and actions of enlightenment before actually um, achieving enlightenment. The Tibetan teacher and meditation master Bokhar Rinpoche explores the nature of deity in his work on Tara, entitled Tara, the Feminine Divine. He highlights the importance of two levels of reality in Tibetan conceptions, the, reality, the, the relative and the ultimate. The relative reality is where we perceive through our senses and interact with our day-to-day -day lives. This reality includes the thoughts, emotions that we experience and interpret to be real. Ultimate reality, on the other hand, refers to the true nature of reality an emptiness and space that reveals the manifestations of the relative to be illusionary in nature. In the relative, we are sensing things and interacting with things, but at the same time, we are interacting, what we are interacting with is only a mental fabrication that occurs because we do not understand the true nature of our minds, our ultimate reality. Once the nature of mind is understood, one perceives all reality as an expression of one's mind. Deities are not just located on the ultimate level, but pervade both levels of reality, just as mind does. In effect, Bokar Rinpoche writes, their nature is such that practicing with deities leads to the realization of the ultimate deity, that is, the mode of being of mind. Until the nature of mind is understood, there continues to be misunderstandings that there is an inherent duality of subject or object or of I or other. Tara's realization helped her to understand the essence of phenomenal reality and allowed her to see that there was ultimately no gender. As a woman, she rejected the belief that enlightenment could only be attained in the male form. She recognized the systematic oppression of the female body in spiritual communities and refused to reproduce the patriarchal devaluing of her own body. She was defiant in the face of oppression. When examining her traditional iconography as Green Tara, she defies the traditional way by which other Buddhas are represented. In contrast to the standard image of a Buddha sitting in full lotus posture, Tara sits with her leg, right leg extended forward. This posture is an act of subversion and resistance because what Tara realizes is that, that Tara, what Tara realizes is that she represents an active and direct compassion. She rejects a comfortable seat, instead readying herself to respond to the needs of anyone that calls on her. Tara 
developed a love and appreciation of the female form. In this way, Tara calls some of the central insights of and central insights and ideas of womanism. Womanism reintroduces the colored female body as a body of love, compassion, and kindness. This reintroduction constitutes a strategy for healing these bodies from trauma, from the trauma of oppression. Womanism critiques any pursuit or idea that does not promote radical self-love to address the traumas of racism, capitalism, homophobia, ableism, and patriarchy within the experiences, bodies, minds, and spirits of women of color. Tar's mythology privileges the female body. Her narrative is not about a woman who is a victim of patriarchy, but about one who transcends it. Tar's resilience against othering is also an expression of the mode of female empowerment expressed by black feminist writer and activist Audre Lorde when she spoke of the erotic. And Sister Outsider Lorde writes, quote, when I speak of the erotic, then I speak of it as an assertion of the life force of women, of that creative energy empowered, the knowledge and use of which we are now reclaiming in our language, in our history, our dancing, our loving, our work, our lives, unquote. Tars rebuttal to the male-dominated <coughs> community of monks invalidating their claim that enlightenment was deserved for the, reserved for the male body was erotic. Tara is said to bless and encourage practitioners when they focus their formal meditations on her by helping them understand the empty nature of fear. Tara is a deity, and therefore she manifests on both the relative and ultimate levels. The relative is the realm where phenomena are sensed and can be interacted with, and though the relative may be an illusion just as the expression of our own minds, Yet it is within the relative that Tara emerges as a female deity of color who embodies awakened agency. She is no longer bound by the relative. Rather, Tara manipulates the relative to benefit other beings who are hurt and lost in the believing of the realness of the relative. A womanist reading of Tara lends itself to a revised understanding of engaged Buddhism. Engaged Buddhism has emerged over the past few decades as a framework for understanding how Buddhists can integrate practicing the Dharma with social justice issues. Often engaged Buddhism is understood to mean that practitioners use the Dharma as a tool to gain deeper insight into injustice and to craft strategies to act dharmically in the world as agents of change. But in my experience, it is Dharma itself that begins to work within our own minds. As agents and subjects of Dharma, we engage with others around us in a way that is more kind, patient, loving, wise, but also more direct. A compassionate practice of the Dharma that is informed and uh, inflected by womanism also helps to, uh, helps to highlight the ways in which engaged Buddhism in the United States has privileged a white perspective. If womanism is indeed concerned with the experiences of the colored female body, then engaged Buddhism as practiced through womanism compels us to listen to and empower those who are othered in liberation struggles. It helps us to understand it is the ways that those other bodies suffer in contemporary society. Speaking of the sensitivity of the colored female body, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams contends, quote, so black female bodies know suffering. That is the nature of the existence in this society. Therefore, they know liberation when they see it, and they are not capable of not seeking that liberation on behalf of others, because that's what liberation is. That's what liberation actually gives rise to. You can't possibly come to know the depths of suffering and then have any other wish other than not than to free others from their own suffering." Unquote. Thus Williams reveals the intimate connection between suffering and liberation as experienced by the colored female body. 
a body she believes has been the most traumatized by oppression and the body womanism emerged to heal. To privilege voices of these bodies is to gain insight into the nature of inequality and to offer a lens through which we can understand how violence is repli replicated even within social justice struggles. When viewed through the lens of womanist informed compassion, Black Lives Matter reveals itself to have been created by those whose otherness has resulted in an accumulated trauma that calls to be acknowledged and healed through compassion. The movement interrogates both the gross and subtle ways that systematic oppression damages the self-esteem of the colored other. The way that womanist ideas cultivate love and compassion, not just for others, but for those most traumatized, can provide the foundation for the liberation of not just the colored female body, but of the colored body that is systematically othered. Several years ago, I heard a teacher explain how important it was for her to relate to Tara in her practice as a good friend. This was an instruction, an instruction that uh, developed, um, this was an instruction that helped to develop intimacy with the deity. The teaching had a profound and lasting impact on me. Years later, I would find myself succumbing to the weight of accumulated racially based trauma. I was deeply unsettled and pained by the deaths of Michael Brown and Eric Garner. I felt as if I was mourning with and for the world. Every dead black body I saw on TV or social media was like seeing my own. I was the one having a hard time breathing, like Garner, who died in a Polish chokehold. I was having a hard time being in the world as a brown-bodied man, and I was acutely aware not only of my own personal trauma, but of the lifetimes of psychological and emotional violence endured and held not only by myself, but by many generations before me and passed on to me without my consent. Sometimes my experience of my skin color was akin to a desperate need to rip off a burning outfit. It broke my heart to think about telling little black boys that they would have to survive being black and male in a time and place that chooses not to hold them warmly or kindly. During this time, I was moved to engage more deeply with the ritual practice of Tara. This meant developing a practice of vulnerability, trust, and devotion toward an unconditional source of compassion. It meant seeing myself as Tara and engaging with her through chanting, meditation, and meditating on her. I felt that like there was no one in the world besides Tara who cared about my feeling of brokenness. Perhaps the greatest kindness Tara has, um, has, uh, has helped me with is that she reminds me that in order to be free, I must embrace my own suffering and, how, and allow it to teach me about the nature of how things really are. In my experience, the practice of Tara is an invitation to experience the divine feminine and to contact a sense of sacred masculinity that transcends racism and patriarchy. I meditate on Tara and in my current Sangha's bronze statue, where she sits with her foot extended, ready to arise and to help. Merging my awareness with her image, I become her. By tapping into sacred feminine energy, I feel my own sacred masculinity is balanced by <coughs> its counterpart. I ask Tara to hold my hand, and she holds, helps me to remember that I am more than my hurtings. She helps me to remember to offer kindness and warmth to the one that sometimes needs the most, myself. After my meditation on her, I feel as if I am too ready to step out into the world like Tara to benefit others. Though womanist identity was not created for me, I believe that womanism offers great insight into the suffering and potential liberation of the, of the male body. Womanism has influenced how I choose to celebrate my own body and experiences. It reminds me of the importance of loving and compassion within my personal struggle to be liberated from my own racial, sexual, and gender-based trauma. Meditating on Tara helps me celebrate not only the feminine body, but the masculine body as well. 
My meditation on Tara helps me practice an ethic of healing for the woundedness of the male body, an ethic that is grounded within masculine experiences <coughs> while, while also interrogating the violence of power and dominance. In 1964, the civil rights movement leader, Ella Baker, declared, until the killing of black men, black mothers' sons, becomes as important to the, to the rest of the country as the killing of a white mother's son who, who we who believe in freedom cannot rest. This became the backbone of Ella's song, Ella's song by Sweet Honey and the Rock, in which, quote, we who believe in freedom cannot rest, unquote, is repeated against a clapped backbeat. These words echo the essence of the Bodhisattva aspiration, which is the wish for an individual to achieve enlightenment to benefit all beings. When Tara worked toward the ultimate goal of enlightenment, she believed in freedom and she did not rest. She knew that in order to benefit all beings, she had to transcend belief in the relative con to contact the ultimate truth of things and then return to the relative with the fullest compassion. Through her enlightenment, she transcended the relative confines of body and identity. Tara continues to offer us an example of what it means to be free and to free others. As we pursue the work of liberation, the ideas of women as thinkers can help us understand how certain ways of conceiving and living out our identities can be harmful actually replicating traumas for ourselves and others. As a womanist figure, Tara is, Tara is showing us, regardless of gender, gender, how loving the body and self can liberate us from the suffering of the body and self. And acting this love does not mean reproducing harm for others. Womanism and Tara shows us that love, deep insight, and compassion for our relative identities can help us to gain deep insight into what we are ultimately. Perhaps this is the experience of Sweet Honey and the Rock that I have been struggling to articulate for years. When they sing, woman hold my hand, they speak my deepest longing to be held by the mother, to be rescued from the violence of my own self-depreciation. Thank you so much to all of you for your very thoughtful contributions and for inviting me to share in the dialogue tonight. I found it to be deeply moving, perhaps even inspiring or revelatory, to read and now hear these four papers alongside one another. At first glance, I thought this might be a game of one of these things is not like the other. But soon I realized the thread connecting all four is the transformative power of difference. The most intimate level, Ryan Gregg suggests that the core of inspiration or revelation is the encounter between self and other, and more particularly, the, quote, surrender of self into the sphere of the other. The proximity of our raw being with another raw being, he writes evocatively, has the unique capacity to invert stark negativity into suffusive positivity. Rod Owens offers a concrete example of this dynamic by telling the story of his own revelatory encounters with Tara. Owens describes what it means to see myself as Tara while also relying on her as an unconditional source of compassion. More specifically, he says that the practice of Tara is an invitation to experience the divine feminine and to contact a sense of sacred masculinity that transcends racism and patriarchy. Early Robin broadens the context from the individual to the faith community 
by exploring the ways faithists and Jediists engage in interfaith dialogue and ask specifically whether online forms for dialogue have a tendency to liquefy differences, thus undercutting the transformative power of dialogue. Finally, Eric Stephen extends the conversation to include entire societies and the challenges they face in adjudicating the claims of individuals and groups who wish to share their revealed truths in the public sphere. I'd like to reflect on two challenges that emerge when one accepts, as all four papers do, I think, that difference can be a source of helpful transformation. The first is this. If the self goes over to the other <clears throat> so completely that the difference between self and other dissolves, does the revelatory power that inheres in otherness suddenly disappear? This challenge emerged for me when Ryan described a parting of the ways with Octavio Paz's emphasis on exclusively human love as a source for poetry. I agree that a different dynamic emerges when the other is understood as divine. But the tension, I think, is not simply between the human and the divine. It's also between different understandings of the divine. Greg seems to draw heavily on mystical theologies in which some sort of union between the human self and the divine is possible. But what about those radically monotheistic traditions in which the boundary between creator and created cannot be transcended? And what about forms of religious naturalism <coughs> that refuse to understand the divine in personal terms at all? How can revelation best be understood in those theological contexts? In Orly Robbins' piece, the corresponding risk uh, is framed in terms of the contrast between syncretism and pluralism. Interreligious dialogue, Robbins suggests, should be practiced in a manner that retains elements of difference. If elements of all traditions are amalgamated into a synchronistic whole, we are back to a monologue instead of a dialogue. Robbins sees Chris Stedman's faithiest practice, especially as embodied in his conversation with evangelical proselytizers to be a positive example of dialogue and worries that online Jediism exhibits problematic syncretism. I'm not sure I fully grasped the argument why online religiosity is more prone to syncretism than face-to-face. -face. Uh, I, I think I see the difference between the two case studies, but I'm not quite sure uh, why a respectful silence couldn't emerge at the end of an online dialogue as it did in Stedman's story. And I certainly can't, I, I can certainly imagine cases where in face-to-face -face dialogue there wouldn't be that respectful silence at the end. <clears throat> More fundamentally, I'm troubled by the syncretism-dialogue dichotomy itself. I worry that it cannot take fully into account the fact that everyone's religion is always already syncretistic, since all of us grew up in families that practiced rituals and held beliefs with diverse pedigrees. Every authentic conversation is an occasion for syncretism, since whenever I hear something of value in your testimony, I will naturally inevitably take it on board my own life story, albeit in my own unique way. Indeed, I suspect that although Stedman's conversation with the proselytizers ended with respectful silence on that day, in the days afterward, 
all the participants may have been converted, at least to some extent, to the perspectives that I, they had heard the others share. Rather than seeking to purge our dialogue of any trace of syncretism, therefore, we might do better <clears throat> to use dialogue to actively celebrate difference. As long as I'm actively celebrating the ways in which you're different from me, I can change in response to you without running the risk that all our differences will disappear. I think this is an approach that Rod Owens models very nicely in his encounter with Tara. I find it interesting that he describes Tara as a womanist, connecting her to the tradition of African-American women's ethical and religious reflection, uh, uh, while also emphasizing her femaleness as traditionally understood in Tibet. Since Tara is Tibetan in her cultural origins and green in her skin tone, the effect of the gesture that Owens is making is to translate her in a manner that makes her like him in one respect, racialized identity, and unlike him in another respect, genderized identity. I'm curious about the reason for that particular um, balancing act, but my main point is to recognize and affirm the gesture of sameness and difference coexisting uh, in that relationship. The second challenge that I saw in these papers is one that appears explicitly only in Eric Stevens' paper. Hence my initial thought that it was the one of these things not like the others. I lost. And that's the challenge of what happens when individuals or entire societies don't want to encounter certain forms of difference or to hear certain revelations. The traditional liberal answer is that diverse voices must be tolerated. Stephen, drawing on Karl Popper, notes the paradox embedded in this answer. If even the voices of intolerance must be tolerated, will, it eventually, will those voices eventually drown out all the others? Robin, quoting the Jediist Ace Boyzor, identifies an opposite dilemma. Perhaps tolerance itself deprives us of the benefits that we might gain from a ro more robust engagement with diversity. Don't just tolerate your fellow human beings, Ace Boyzor advises. Listen to them. I must say that as I read Stephen's account of the US and European strategies for managing the paradox of tolerance, I felt myself to be deeply, perhaps parochially, American. Uh, uh, since many current events make me feel the opposite, this is a nice, <laughs> a nice um, way to feel. The American approach strikes me as the correct one, the European as misguided and not authentically liberal. Uh, uh, partly this is that I don't quite think that the European notion of human dignity is what causes the particular laws you described. I think they're caused by traditional religious establishments trying to maintain their power, and the dignity thing is a post facto justification. But more fundamentally, I don't think that proselytizing speech is an example of Popper's paradox of tolerance. When Popper says that liberal societies must wrestle with how to respond to intolerant speech, I think he's primarily thinking about Nazi speech or KKK speech, um, organizations that actively seek to silence people based on their religious or racialized identities. Those organizations actually have more in common with people who advocate restrictions on proselytizing than they have with proselytizers themselves. When the Nazis marched through Skokie, their goal was to harass and intimidate the Jewish residents of that town, not to convert them to Nazi ideology. 
By contrast, Jehovah's Witnesses and Hare Krishnas genuinely seek to share their precious truth with their neighbors. I see nothing inherently intolerant in that gesture. To be sure, I don't regard either of these groups as above criticism. Uh, I find the Jehovah's Witness view of the fate of this earth to be deeply troubling. Um, some of the things I understand to be the case about the way people have been treated uh, and abused in some um, Hare Krishna communities are also deeply troubling. Uh, um, practices that have been attributed to other proselytizing groups, such as uh, using deception in proselytization, are also threats to free society, but none of this is inherent in the act of proselytization itself. Proselytizing is both a gesture of generosity, I want you to hear my truth, and one that anticipates a tolerant response. Far from undermining the values of a, lib of a liberal society, widespread proselytizing gives the rest of us lots of chances to practice our tolerance. <laughs> I think that's the point of, of Stedman's anecdote about his encounter with Bible-carrying missionaries who shared their anti-homosexual message and then listen to his testimony about his journey to self-acceptance as a gay man. Stedman met proselytizing with proselytizing, and his ex experience suggests that if everyone were willing to do this, the result would be, at minimum, a more tolerant society, and potentially a society transformed by deep dialogue. And that brings me back to Ryan Gregg's suggestion that the one methodology for negotiating identity and revelatory difference is love. Might the practice of love, in fact, be capable of meeting both the challenge of preserving the self from dissolution when encountering the other, and the challenge of responding to intolerance at a societal level? At the individual level, if I see myself in a love relationship with the deity, prophet or friend who inspires me, then it's reasonable that I would want to preserve some sense of difference between us but also to be open to being transformed by the relationship. It's especially the case if our model of love is in part erotic, uh, um, where uh, in an erotic, re erotic relationship, you're simultaneously being transformed and reveling in the difference of the other. And that seems to be exactly what Rod Owens is doing in his relationship with Tara. At the level of interfaith dialogue, it might be possible to ex extend the same sort of love to my dialogue partners that in my personal devotion I extend to the divine. I sense this is the goal of both the faithiests and the Jediists described by Orly Robin, even if the latter in particular may not always attain to their goal. Finally, at the societal level, if my response to proselytization is not tolerance but love, I will naturally want to listen deeply, but also to respond by sharing my own liberating truths. Obviously, loving responses to proselytization cannot be legislated, and governments will still have to choose among the models described by Eric Stephen. But religious communities can, I think, shape the outcomes of those government policies if they think in loving terms as they strategize both how to engage in proselytization and how to respond to it. On the other hand, perhaps love is not quite all that we need. The only way to find out for sure is to engage in more dialogue, and so at this point, I open up the floor. Thank you. Well, 
thank you everyone um, for sticking around till the end. Um, first, I, um, Eric gave me a great segue into this. Um, no one lost. You are all going home with award checks from HDSSA Council. Um, so I just wanted to thank everyone on behalf of HDSSA Council. Um, I'd also like to thank Dr. McKinnon for that profound and thought-provoking response. I'd like to thank the presenters for glimpses into your research and your passions. Um, and I'd like to thank the Office of Student Life, um, especially Tim Welski for doing our introductions today. Uh, so yeah, oh, and lastly, I wanna thank the selection committee for dealing with my massive spreadsheets. Um, <laughs> very grateful to all of you, faculty and students, who put in all that time. Um, so I'd like to open up the floor for a Q&A. I'm gonna ask that if anyone has any questions to speak loudly and that then for the respondents to repeat the question for everyone and for the lovely camera in the back. Um, and I will just mediate. So does anyone have any questions? So your question is primarily about the liquidity of the real world, sort of throwing my terminology on its head a bit. Um, that's, an, that's an interesting question, and one that I hadn't really thought of in that way. Uh, I guess I'll preface it with this. When I started exploring Jediism, my goal was not to reveal that um, A, it was even dealing with interfaith engagement. I wanted to deal with a, a new type of religion. and also, once I discovered that interfaith dialogue was a part of the religious structure, I wanted to show that it was successful. So when I started exploring media theory, specifically Marcus Novak, I became involved with all of these, um, the terminology about the liquid architecture of cyberspace, and I thought it was really profound. And then uh, I began to find those terms that dealt directly with uh, you know, more liquid-like imagery within the Jedi forums. And they weren't talking about media theory, they were just talking about the way they were approaching other religions. I didn't find um, any allusions to liquidity within Faithism. So I don't know if that's an entirely a direct answer to your question, but in terms of the, my own research, and I th I'm interested in it. Also, in, in this whole concept of how pluralism maybe requires all of us to change a little bit, and to what degree is fluidity a term that we can apply to that? I don't know, it's, but um, yeah, that's, that's my answer. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah, 
So, not sure if this is a great question, but I saw that a lot of you were furiously writing things down while Professor McCann was responding to you, and I can't help but wonder if any of you had any further reflections to share. Response to the response. Response to the response. Just, you I all can send you my text. And response to the response. I'll respond. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate um, Professor McCann's observation of how I identified um, Tara as a woman of color. Um, that was my first question. Actually, it was a real uh, realization one day um, where I was like, oh, this is a woman of color. <laughs> Just basically, you know, and what that meant and, you know, what does it mean to, to relate to um, a colored woman? you know, um, that actually transcends any socially racialized constructs mm -hmm. and dualities, you know, and what does that mean to actually approach a deity that transcends all of that, you know, and the trouble and the problems that we have when we're trying to attach these things to her, you know, that, oh, she's a woman of color like me, then she must have these experiences, actually, no, <laughs> you know, um, and womanism emerged after that as a way for me to make meaning of that of that that kind of reflection you know what does this mean um for in terms of like liberatory identity struggle and compassion and love you know how can i root tar within this this kind of understanding that can be a further use um in movements like black lives matter for instance or radical drama which is my project you know and i work on that side so, yeah, it's just it's an ongoing reflection. I'm still not, I haven't landed anywhere with that. But this work is just like an introduction to the scholarship that I've never seen or heard before from anyone um, until now. <laughs> um, so I look forward to what else is going to come out of this, really. But I broke down how can love um, support us as we dissolve a sense of self. Um, and that's a really beautiful kind of way of understanding relationships to the deity. Um, because ultimately we are the deity. So we're dissolving the superficial sense of self that actually helps us expand um, into the nature of our own minds, which is the deity um, in Tantra. I'll respond as well. Um, so I was, I was interested in your comment, Professor McCannon, on the limitations of kind of using proselytism as a way to address the paradox of tolerance. Um, and I think to a very large extent, you're correct in your description of Popper in that the, his work was written in 1945. It was directly um, taking aim at kind of issues of World War II and essentially the argument becomes um, we allowed tolerance for too long and it essentially imploded European society. Um, <clears throat> I, I would like to kind of address the question of the paradox of tolerance then necessarily engaging questions of individuals, as you put it, actively seeking to silence others. Um, one of the reasons I'm interested in proselytism is because of the ways in which it could implicitly do that as well, more so than explicitly trying to silence others. Um, I have a quote in my longer paper from the theologian Paul Griffiths um, and he argues that, quote, the grammar of proselytism often implies a moral judgment of error or impropriety on the part of the aliens being proselytized 
and the consequent adoption designed to bring the mistaken aliens into the fold of those who think rightly or behave properly. Uh, so the framing of kind of proselytism as generosity, which you reference as let me impart my truths to you, could also be reframed to say, let me tell you why my truths are better than your truths. Um, and the existence of a plurality of truth claims can create certain tensions. And when this becomes systematic, I believe that there are ways that this can be marginalizing or silencing, albeit in a much more implicit way. Um, so I see this addressing the paradox of tolerance, um, but looking at things not as violent or vitriolic or obvious as Nazism, but things that can create social and substantive inequalities by not giving people access to the marketplace of ideas or allowing different truth claims to be taken as seriously because of different dynamics of power that operate within these societies themselves. Um, and so I do see the paradox of tolerance playing out in this discourse. Um, and I'm interested in it because it plays out in a much more tacit and subtle way than what we would see in the immediate wake of World War II, we're looking at incredibly violent, coercive, forceful versions of proselytism. Yeah, can I just? Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's that's really helpful. And, and one, you know, as you were talking about the implicit silencing and proselytizing, I immediately started thinking about the kind of proselytizing that happens when religious majorities aggressively proselytize the minorities in their midst. So, you know, the kid who's the one non-Christian in their elementary school who gets harassed by it. But that's precisely the sort of proselytization that's never the subject of anti-proselytizing laws. You know, the laws are always targeting the proselytizing by obnoxious minorities. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's my impression that the, the Greek law in question was about obnoxious minorities, not overpowering majorities. For sure, and I, there's I, I, a lot of kind of interesting questions. For example, in the Wingrove case out of the UK, people were able to use blasphemy law to undermine this, this um, movie, but then a few years later, you have Salman Rushdie publishing the Satanic Verses, and all of a sudden there's a lot of defense of this as free speech, free speech, free speech, and there wasn't even standing for Muslims in the UK to make a blasphemy claim because the language of the blasphemy laws in the UK were about the English people. It implied that Anglican Protestantism was a distinctly English form of religious practice. And so there are a lot of interesting power dynamics associated with not only how the laws are created, but also how the laws are justified and who gets to make those types of claims. Um, so I think they are all kind of intricately wrapped together, but I do still, I would still defend the claim that the paradox of tolerance is still deeply wrapped up in that as well. Um, I was especially interested in your paper because my son lives in London and has told me about laws, you can't say certain things about the Queen and uh, there's State churches, albeit not directly state-supported much anymore, but they're all over the place. It's quite a different atmosphere. It seems to me you're talking about perhaps some compromise that will both allow vigorous expression and yet some sort of respect and tolerance. And I wonder if you thought about the Massachusetts, Massachusetts laws on abortion protests. Mm 
Commonwealth Ave, where there's an abortion clinic. The court required the protesters to be a certain number of feet away. I forget what that is. So they can shout. The woman can be physically away and shout back if she wants. It's still rough confrontation, but the distance may be a physical way of trying to build tolerance. I wonder if you mm -hmm. have any thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I would say that I think my work right now is a little bit more descriptive than normative and trying to kind of come up with this. But I, I do think your claim of a middle ground is really interesting, um, particularly because I think one of the reasons that drew me to these types of questions was because I felt that I saw in a lot of American discourse, whenever there was a big court case that involved civil liberties, a lot of the time it was being conceived as, here are the people who are not committed to our civil liberties making a claim versus here are the people who are deeply committed to our civil liberties trying to make a counterclaim. And I want that discourse to shift and I want it to say, there are communities that define these rights differently and choose to privilege rights differently depending like when they come into tension with one another. Um, and so allowing for those shifts in discourse will I think allow us to better understand exactly why these tensions are emerging and how we can adjudicate them in a meaningful and democratic way instead of throwing them into the courts every single time. Um, and I think the middle ground is really kind of what an idealized solution would be that we don't swing the pendulum really aggressively on the side of liberty such that we completely undermine our commitments to equality or throw the pendulum so far into the side of equality that we undermine commitments to individual freedom and individual liberty such that we create kind of a system of what we might call like a benevolent totalitarianism. Um, <coughs> but this is always, I think, a dialectic and it's always something that needs to be playing out in the public sphere in response to changing social and political circumstances. Um, and so I'm not sure I have an answer of like what the middle ground is and exactly how far you need to be away from the abortion clinic to have your speech um, or anything along those lines. But I, I think what I hope my work does as kind of a broader project is allow these conversations to be framed in such a way that we can have more meaningful democratic discussions about them. Um, I don't know if that answers <laughs> your question directly, but. Well, it's particularly poignant because the woman has made up her mind to have the abortion and is going in to do it. It's not as though the discussion were earlier, mm -hmm. and it's occurring at a very vulnerable, emotional time. So yeah, a last-ditch really effort kind of thing. Really yeah. Snapshot of the mm -hmm. Yeah. One more question. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so you all spoke about dialogue. What I learned was that we need a woman a scholar on faculty. <laughs> and I shouldn't be the only woman as I shouldn't be a woman a scholar writing on this material and being represented as a male assistant person doing this. So that's what I learned. And so I, that was my biggest conflict writing this project. Um, so um, I think something I would say is that we always need to be recognizing that pluralism is itself a political project and requires the disciplining down of the subject. Um, 
that you know Morrissey talks frequently about good religion and bad religion, and good religion is the type of religion that can exist in pluralist spaces, and bad religion is the type of religion that can't. And can we justify that? And if so, how do we justify that? And who gets to justify that? And what kind of power dynamics are embedded into the claim of what pluralism is, and who can be participating in it, and who stands outside of it? Um, because I do think there are meaningful justifications for the pluralist paradigm, especially one that exists at HDS. Mm -hmm. However, we always need to be recognizing that some violence can be done by saying this is what pluralism is and how it operates. And if you can't get on board with the underlying assumptions of pluralism, we don't know if you can be participating in this project. Um, and that's something that, again, is something that always needs to be up for social and political navigation. But just making that move to recognize the disciplining effect of pluralism is something that I think can move us forward and allow for a nuanced conversation. And I guess I'll just add, um, this is no offense to the Jedis or uh, <laughs> any Star Wars fans or any people inspired to join the Jedi's cause. But um, I think for me, it really, in an age where uh, so many of us are constantly on our phones and we're constantly overwhelmed and overburdened by technology, um, delving into a lot of this media theory just made me realize the importance of real-time, face-to-face engagement, and also understanding how uh, we might be able to achieve moments of religious pluralism by participating in that real-time, face-to-face human interaction, um, and just how important and transformative, transformative it can be. I've been pretty quiet, so I'll just jump in real quick. <laughs> uh, um, just to say that I really don't have anything super profound to say <laughs> other than that. Um, for me, I, I think I've had some really meaningful experiences just like deeply listening to people. It's really cliche to say, but um, I just, uh, it's been a real benefit for me being here. It's just like kind of swimming in all this, uh, all this color, beautiful. Um, I don't, I don't have words for it, but I just, I, I find uh, the most meaningful thing to be quiet for myself. That's it. Well, thank you everyone for coming. One big applause.